1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So today, we're going to focus on a leader who's made some rather significant transitions in his career, going from one role to a quite dramatically different one. Now, the purpose is to talk to a leader about his personal journey, why he made the move, how he's dealt with the imposter syndrome, if at all, how he's persuaded people to follow him, and how he sees his own leadership and what he thinks has made him successful. So my guest today is Andrew Cleary. And as I've implied, Andrew's no stranger to being out of his comfort zone. He started his career as a lawyer, moved to legal executive search, transitioned into being a junior producer on the Squawk Box in Europe for CNBC. He was in London at the time. Then he worked as a journalist for Bloomberg News and finally moved back home to Australia working for the Australian Financial Review. Quite a few changes. Afterwards, shortly after that, he decided to join Qantas Airlines, first in the investor relations team and then running the investor relations function. He's made several moves at Qantas and is now Executive Manager for the Qantas Loyalty Program, running the end-to-end strategy, the customer experience, and the operations of Qantas Frequent Flyer Program. Now, I should say that program has 12.5 million members, and he went from a staff of 16 to a staff of 90 with an offshore operation and a digital and data-intensive operation. So, Andrew, I can't wait to hear the stories. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Wanda. Looking forward to it.
1: Okay, so let's start, I want to talk about some, just to make sure everybody understands all the moves, and I did a highlight on that one, but I didn't explain why along the way. So, you started out life as a lawyer, and then moved to executive search, and then moved to media. Why?
2: That's right. <laughs> why? Why? Uh, look, I've got to say, when you were giving the introduction, it, it made me feel a little bit exhausted. Um, a lot of times, I, I think I've asked myself that that same question. Uh, but look, I think for me, it, it was simple. It was law, law was never a passion of mine. It was one of those things. I think when you're young and you know, if, if you're going reasonably well in school, people give you this, you know, fantastic advice. In retrospect, um, you know, you could be a lawyer or a doctor, and. Um, I somehow kind of found myself in law. I didn't... It wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. Uh, And I was in criminal law. So, you know, I was in court every day. uh, And this is not white-collar crime. You know, this is really defending uh, people often who had severe challenges in their life and found themselves on the wrong side of the law. It was very challenging. It was very interesting. But I just... I knew it was not me. Um, I didn't enjoy it. I didn't get any excitement out of it. and I just had this real lightning bolt moment uh, with one case in particular. And I was like, what are you doing here? Uh, the thing that you actually really love is writing. Uh, you know, it kind of really came back to me, the bit that I enjoy. So uh, I just i bit the bullet, uh, enrolled in the Masters of Journalism at night, and I knew that there was no way I was going to be able to complete a Masters degree whilst I was working as a criminal lawyer. You know, you've got to spend a lot of nights um, uh, as a lawyer. So studying at night, spoke to a friend of mine, and in all seriousness, I just said, look, I need a job where I'm going to be able to show up, do it well, preferably requires you know some kind of my skill set so that I can really focus on my studies. Uh, and a friend of mine said, you know, come to Executive Search. It's, I'm not saying it's easy, but she said it's not exactly a nighttime job, and you can focus on doing the thing that, that you want to do. Uh, so that's why I made that first change.
1: Fascinating. So I'm interested in this sort of epiphany because everybody wants to know what is it that I really love and can I find that thing that gets me excited and so on. How did I mean, you said it just came clear to you that you loved writing. Is there anything any more insightful about how you discovered that? You
2: know, I, I discovered that and I discovered that in high school. Uh, I, I knew that in high school it, it was the one thing that I never struggled with. Um uh, I would, you know, I'd be very, very happy to collect my thoughts, sit down, and, and then write an essay or prepare a speech. Uh, and the same to university, it was never the writing, um, which I know a lot of people have always tell me is the thing they dread the most about any kind of assignment or, you know, business case. Uh, was actually like that's the bit where I really find that I'm operating quickly, moving, moving fast, and, and the thoughts came out very, very naturally for me. And yet I found myself doing a role which was very research-intensive without the end result. So I was like, I want to get back into the bit that actually, where I, you know, you can genuinely feel like you're firing. And then I started studying at night, doing my master's degree, and I really, you you kind of go, these are my people. I'm, I'm around people who are the same as me, who get excited by the same things, who, who like to ask questions and are naturally curious. I think that was the other thing for me about journalism, is I've always been someone who asks why and what then and what happened next. You know, I'm trying to annoy a lot of people in the process that I was like, hey, journalism, you actually get paid to do this. That could work out for me.
1: I love it. That makes a lot of sense. I also can see how well-meaning people in your life would say you should be a lawyer because some of that writing and speaking and naturally asking questions is what we look at. Say, oh, you would make a great lawyer. Um, Just need a little more guidance than that one. Okay, it makes sense to me now. I get the thread. And I guess like all of us, even though you've made a number of moves, there's always this underlying thread. So I love this part of the story. You've got your master's degree in journalism you move to London and start pounding the streets. Just tell me really quickly what happened there.
2: Yeah, you know, this is, uh, I'd say, this is pre-financial crisis days. So maybe everyone was a little bit more uh, confident in a bull market, a little bit more cocky. But um, yeah, really, the second that that I finished, uh, I decided, um, you know, me and my partner then uh, were English and we thought, you know, let's go out, let's do something new, perfect time to start out fresh. And I also got some of probably the best advice I've ever had in my entire career uh, at that time from my partner, now husband. Because when we got to London, the easiest thing in the world for me, and I actually had a job offer and very quickly another one, to stay in executive search. The easiest thing would have been to just take that job. It was great money. As I said, it was in the bull market. And I said, you know, maybe I'll just do this for a year or two uh, and then we'll kind of um, see what's out there in journalism. Uh, and my partner said, you know what, you have not. Slaved and you know gone to, gone back to school at night for the last two years uh, to take the easy option out. Bite the bullet now, uh, take the plunge and find a journalism job, or you may never do it. Um, so that's what I did, and uh, you yeah, know I, I literally just started applying for jobs. You know I hit up the big names like Reuters, uh, the Wall Street Journal, uh, and in fact it was after my interview with the Wall Street Journal um, I was coming back down the lift, uh, walking out of the building, and I looked up. And on the wall, uh, I saw that CNBC was also in the same building. So I just got back up in the lips, uh, went up to CNBC and said, you know, I'm just interested if there's any, uh, you know, junior, and I'm like, hang on, what are they called again TV? A producer, junior producer role going. And they said, oh, yeah, here's um, the junior associate producer role starting next week. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm here for. Uh, ended up, found myself in an interview that day uh, and started the next week. So it was just <laughs> right place, right time, a little bit of luck.
1: I love the confidence, Andrew. I absolutely love it. All right, so let's go. So you had a number of successful positions in journalism, you know, from Bloomberg News and Australian Financial Review, for those who don't know it, is similar to the Wall Street Journal or the Financial Times in that market. You move from being the job you love to Qantas. Now, I'm sure Qantas is an absolutely brilliant company, but again, I have to say, why yeah, I think
2: uh, for me it was – and it wasn't as, as crazy as it might sound on the outside because the role, the last role that I had in journalism in Australia was actually covering the aviation industry. So I had been covering Quant- – and Qantas is obviously the largest airline uh, in this part of the world. So it wasn't just covering the company. I knew a lot of the executives. Uh, I'd really gotten to know the, the company's backstory and, and really start to admire the, the brands, you know, the, the company itself. So it was through conversations with with people there, you know, including some very senior executives, where they started saying, asking me the question, would you ever consider jumping ship, you know, coming this side? And I started to ask myself the same question, and it wasn't why, it it just very quickly became why not? I really enjoyed my job, uh, but I also started to get this sense, you know, in Australia, we'll always come back to like a surfing analogy at times, but you know, rather than wait for the last wave in the set and, and hope it's the best one, I was always kind of that feeling that, you know, this set's pretty good, it feels right, let's just take this one. Uh, so it wasn't actually endless thought about it. It felt right at the time. And I have to say that the one thing that really sold it for me was I knew that I was going there to work for an outstanding leader. And, and that to me was everything. I thought like, I will learn a lot uh, from this individual as well as his team. And so I kind of, you know, I just jumped.
1: Okay. All right. And you moved pretty quickly up the ranks. Um, So first being the individual contributor and then suddenly being a leader and executive. What has surprised you about that transition?
2: Uh, Number one, I'd have to say, you know, going from being a journalist to to working in a large corporate, it was the meetings. I felt like suddenly I was like, my God, I'm spending half my day in endless meetings. Um, What do I do about this? Am I supposed to speak? What do all these people do in the company? Um, but look, more seriously, once, you, once I got into the rhythm of the company, I think the things that surprised me the most, um, the first thing was the generosity of people in the company who were so willing to give up their time uh, to really answer my questions, you know, the from the very mundane and the silly through to, you know, what really makes this place tick? What, what are the major business drivers? Uh, and then once I started to get that sense, the other thing that surprised me was, Really, I guess how useful my skill set was, you know, being a strong communicator, uh, having that investigative background, you know, both from law and from journalism, where you're always, always curious. You always want to find out what's going on, but then being able to translate that in investor relations at the time into, you know, like a really clear, sharp narrative to let other people know what's going on. I think probably my surprise was how relevant my skill set rather than feeling like a fish out of water.
1: I'm not surprised because I think one of the most valuable skills in working with people, whether you're leading them formally or just trying to get them to do what you want them to do, is what I describe as a gentle curiosity. An interest in how people make sense of their world, what they're thinking, what they see, what they want, what they don't want, and that ability to ask questions in a way that doesn't put people on edge but gets them to just talk to you. And it strikes me that's what journalists do in some ways. I I realize journalists can also ask pointed questions, but not every day, not all the time. So I'm not surprised.
2: I don't know how gentle gentle we are as a profession sometimes uh, in journalism. Um, but, but also, I think sometimes, uh, and I would say this is probably something that I've learned to adapt over time. At first, probably because I didn't know a different style, it, it did come across as a little bit pointed. And I think some people might have misinterpreted and they were like, please just leave me alone. But, you know, I, I still say to all my teams today, you know, before you embark on anything, you know, or when something is being presented to you, just ask yourself repeatedly and continually, why? 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 Why are we doing this? What is our objective? You know, have we really thought of all of the different angles? Have we got the right people involved? They're all really, really important to start with why. Because if you can nail that, you know, I think you're 80% of the way there. And for me, being able to find out that why and then explain it is, is even more powerful
1: find and explain. I love it. That's fabulous. Because the journalism skills to be able to be succinct, to be clear, to have a metaphor to describe it a way that lets it stick with people is also, I think, one of the powerful skills for driving change. Okay, so that part was relatively easy, getting into the rhythm, figuring out, you know, people being generous, your skill set was actually quite useful. What's been difficult in the transition?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, kind of to think back because it's a, it's a you know, good, uh, I've been in Qantas for six years now, but when I think back to then, I think that the hardest part for me was actually something that you just touched on, which was, was adapting my style. Uh, because mm-hmm. when you come from journalism, it, it's very much, even though you work for a publication and you're part of a broader team, you know, it, it's really about, you know, Andrew Cleary, the journalist, going out and getting my story, bringing it back to the editor job done on that day, go out the next day and get another one. Uh, And it's really often about, you know, it's it's your byline. Like, it's your byline on the story uh, and quite personal in a way around that. And for me, having to adapt my style to be like, you are a small part of a large team. You know, we have a massive strategy as a company and this is the bit that we really want you to spearhead or contribute to. I really found that whilst I said my natural curiosity was something that fitted in well, I think it was the how. she <laughs> is another one of the powerful, you know, the why. Mm-hmm. The how for me was where I've really had to adapt. Um, and I think at times for me it was about realising that you don't have to solve everything then and there. There's no deadline today. <laughs> there's, no, like, there's no paper to file. So <laughs> slowing down a little bit, uh, taking the time to listen to every side or at least a lot more sides of the story and reflect. And that's probably something that I, I think... Um, you know, a lot of journalists, especially bad journalists, don't do enough of is actually the reflection. So that's something that i yeah. found has been definitely difficult. Uh, the other two things for me, definitely leading a team. I'd never had to lead a team uh, before I came to Qantas. Um, I know that that's probably something I'm going to spend a bit of time, but um, it didn't just wasn't something I fell into naturally and went, I've got this from day one. And I think that is really linked to the third thing for me, which is really around where do you, where do you get your satisfaction, um, your job satisfaction from? Because in journalism, it was really about nailing that story, you know, like getting, getting the scoop ahead of everyone else or feeling like you've written a really beautiful piece of analysis. But again, it kind of came back to, you know, me and what I've done in that situation and having to adapt where I find my satisfaction from, not from what I do, but from what my team do that I lead. That, that has been a really gradual process for me, but actually, one of the most, I think, the most rewarding part of the journey that I've gone
1: on. So how did, tell us about that transition. How did you get there? I mean, I can, and because I, I think it's so common for so many people, even people who've been in the corporation for their entire careers, much of your early years are around what I can do and produce myself and show you how valuable I am, and then it changes. So how did you go about, what, what, tell us more about that transition.
2: Uh, yeah, look, I'll say I've been, I've been incredibly lucky, uh, to have fantastic mentors, uh, and advice and people who will really, you know, at times kind of be very blunt with me and say, this is not working for you. Or you really need to wake up and understand that whilst you see it like this way, it is being perceived this way. And, and that's helped me amazingly because I think anyone's first reaction, or at least my first reaction to that at first is, you're a bit defensive and you say, well, you know, it's always worked for me before in the past. Uh, but for me, you know, there are were, there were several of those kind of um, real lightning rod moments. Uh, and, and one of them was a conversation with a you know, very senior executive in the, in the company who said, everyone knows, you know, just how bright uh, and just how great a contribution you make, but it can't continue to come across as this is as good as it gets because I've worked on it. I'm sure you'll agree it's really, really... Uh, polished, let's all move on. Come in, say, this is where we got to where I'm at. This is something I'd like to propose. I'd like to have a bit of a discussion around it. What do you think? Said so, you know, ask the powerful questions of other people. Take that away. Go and, you know, think about who you didn't involve in the process, then come back, and then I can guarantee you're going to have a more rounded business case, proposal, whatever it is it's far more likely to succeed and is far more likely to be championed within the business. Now, those style of conversations are something that I've been really lucky to have from people that I really respected and admired, and that has helped me go on that transition. It's not something that I've done on my own, and frankly, I don't know if I would have made, uh, you know, come as far along that journey um, as I have without those really powerful mentors in my life. And then the second thing that I've found really... Um, instructive is I did actually go and proactively seek out uh, help from a corporate coach. And I've found corporate coaching incredibly useful. uh, Someone to, you know, just be a sounding board to really say, you know, at times, you know, it's small and it's petty stuff and this is really frustrating me. I've got this particular issue and I I don't know how to get past it. Through to the really big things, which are how is helping you get where you want to be in five years? And it kind of forces you to go, oh my God, I don't even know where I want to be in five years. So let's have a chat about that. But uh, I'll say this is not an overnight process. It's something that six years later, I feel a lot more comfortable uh, in my own skin uh, as a leader. But, you know, I've got a long way to go still.
1: I often say to people, I think leadership is a lifelong journey. Anybody who thinks you, you're there is kind of probably finished in their career because uh, if people are, don't. I mean, that's just not as straightforward. So did you in all of this, did you ever feel like an imposter?
2: Yeah, um, definitely. Uh, definitely, I think when I started, um, it was probably that the biggest sense of that feeling because you've gone from being somewhat of the enemy uh, on the outside. Um, people used to uh, seeing your, uh, your name attached to sometimes negative stories about the company, and when you're suddenly in there saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be the one who takes our story and, and really fights the fight for us out in the financial markets, there are a lot of people who didn't instantly um, say, welcome to the team. Uh, probably um, more deeply than that, I I think it was when I actually moved out of um, investor relations and and into my first role uh, as a commercial manager and and leading a team. Um, It wasn't the subject matter so much. It was feeling like an imposter that you're all going to somehow listen to me uh, and accept me as a leader when in my eyes, at least, it was so obvious that I was not a practice leader I didn't have this down pat. Uh, so I was seeing to thing like, why would these people want to hear from me? Why would they trust me? Uh, and yeah, at the time, it was exactly, and that's something that I actually first learned about at the time was imposter syndrome and did a bit of reading about and then started speaking about with different people to say, how did you get so good at being a leader? How did you, you know, when I watch you and I see the way that you engage with people, uh, that you're very humble that uh, you use powerful examples that are very personal to help people rally behind you. And every single one of them uh, said the same thing. Um, I, I practiced. I didn't wake up one day and, and find that I was great at this. I practiced. I listened to other great people. Um, and then I just started getting out there and you know, forced myself to get a bit uncomfortable, to do the thing that I didn't you know, feel natural doing. Uh, so that's what I started doing.
1: Great. Great. Well, that certainly fits with the title of the of the radio show, Out of the Comfort Zone. So let's talk for a minute about the team. Did you find that people were, I mean, was it easy to get people to follow you? Was there a lot of resistance? I mean, did they resent having you as a leader? Did you experience any of that? Um,
2: look, to be honest, I think most of the resistance to being a leader was, was probably in my own head. Um, but but I'd have to say, if there is still shades of that old, you know, getting my self-satisfaction from what I did and what I contributed, if there was still part of that when I was leading my first team at uh, Qantas, then, then I just I knew that it wasn't going to work. Uh, I just really knew that I had to make a quite big shift relatively quickly. So for me, I just decided to really be on the front foot about this. Um, and again, take some of the advice that I've been given and say, look, I can't do your job. You know, I, I have not I was leading the alliances function at the time. And these are real SMEs. They're experts in what they do. And I said, I can't do your jobs and I'm not here to check your homework. Uh, I'm definitely not the expert. And you call me out if I've tried to pretend that I was. But I said, but what I am good at doing is, you know, finding out what that one or two things that we really need to smash together. I'm going to help us really focus around that. And to be honest, I really just want to be here to, to set you up and us up for success. And believe me, I was saying a lot of this before I knew really how I was going about doing all of that, but I just knew the whole make it till you make it thing wasn't gonna work because they would they would just see it instantly.
1: Yeah. Right. That, uh, that's interesting. Um, it's often, I often have people talk about a particular person who took a bit of a time to come on board and really see that you had value to add in the company. Did you have any of those experiences?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely. And I think I, I'd probably call out two. Like one one would, be, would have been more senior than myself, like a very senior stakeholder in the company. Where for them, it was, and again, it probably came back to seeing me come across almost as very transactional, you know, bringing something in, here's the work, this is the process we went through, I'm sure you'll agree it looks really great, is it endorsed and can I move on? And going from probably thinking, I don't really need to have too much more to do with that person other than what's required, to really then when they had a problem, and you know what, that's the thing, I, I actually really love problem solving. I love it when things are, are really meaty and challenging and there isn't an obvious solution. And there was one of those situations and I said, hey, look, I'd really love to talk with you about this because I, I think I know what the problem is and I don't yet know what we're going to do about it, but really worked with them and worked with their team on this. And for me, that was really the turning point with this individual and, pro- and very much... Um, them with me, definitely, because I think they saw a completely different side of me and I saw a massively different side of this person. I was like, oh, I've got a lot to learn. This person is so smart, this person, the way that they cut through to the heart of the matter. And for me, that was probably the biggest turnaround with it. a more senior individual. Um, with someone in my team, uh, I had a situation where I think it was just because I was seen as being... In, in their eyes, you know, and they shared this with me, like almost unapproachable, um, that I didn't let my guard down uh, and they ended up giving me feedback. Oh, look, I used to be actually terrified to come to you to talk about something that I could see as weakness because I didn't ever see you um, portray any weakness. And I was saying, you know, what do you, what do you mean? Like I've got heaps of things that I'm uncomfortable about. And they said, but I never saw that. You can present as very... You know, like it's almost like a bit of a bulletproof thing. And I went away and thought about that, and and I was like, that would be absolutely horrible to think about your leader, um, you know, or anyone really, that I wouldn't want to go and talk to them about my problems because they don't seem to have any of their own. And that again was one of those really powerful moments for me because you didn't think, well, why does that person think that? And then that very quickly turned to, well, why wouldn't they think that? When do you ever share anything? genuinely personal about your challenges, about things that you've gone through, uh, or really much that shows that you're a proper human with vulnerabilities. Uh, And I realized that I didn't do that with my team because I was still probably clinging on to that belief that the leader is, you know, the the strong person out front who has to set the vision but also appear appear a bit, you know, invincible. And the second that I started letting go of that, and really understanding the power, connecting with a team by being a real human being, uh, that to me was, was one of the real, you know, it was, it was a really powerful moment for me, I think.
1: Yeah, a um, couple of people that I've been working with recently, one that I spoke with today, in fact, who has a fairly reserved nature, and I don't think it's because they're trying to appear invincible, I just think it's their natural style that they're a bit reserved. And failing to see how much people interpret that and believe that that means invincible, uninterested, transactional, have to be perfect—a whole host of things—and you add to that, you know, pretty high IQ to begin with, and you can actually keep, you know, put people off that they are afraid to come and talk to you. So it's not—it's not uncommon, yeah.
2: Absolutely, I was going to say, and I think it's also it, it's also when you when you really understand that that's going on, uh, you realise how much like tension and, and pressure you're really putting on yourself um, by not actually just letting go a little bit. Um, and you kind of really, what you're doing at the end of the day, and this is what I've discovered, is you're taking a bit of a bet on yourself and saying, well, what would happen if I did just show up to work actually is me? You know, I did kind of, let people see my sense of humor, um, you know, kind of say, look, you know, share my strengths, but also, look, these are areas that I need a bit of help with. Um, Admit you're wrong. Admit you need help. What would actually happen? Um, So what I've discovered is if you, you know, and maybe it's going to be different for other people, but I've discovered that taking a bit of a bet on yourself, that you are in your job for a reason, uh, you have got here uh, because you must be good at a few things, but also understanding that you can learn and be a lot better. Placing that bet uh, has been incredibly rewarding for me because I've found people respond to you just so much more. I feel more relaxed at work and I feel people really responding to me in a much more different, more powerful way.
1: Right. And it's not so much that I have to tell you every deep, dark secret of what goes on in my private life um, or all the things that my family does on the weekend, as much as it is just as you exactly said, that admitting some things are wrong and there's places you're trying to grow and develop. And it encourages everybody else to grow and develop as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. And, you know, people talk about bringing bringing your whole self to work. And, and I'm with you. It's not it's not the, you know, intimate secrets of my lifestyle. But it is, it's about, I think, bringing your your character to work, you know, not feeling like you need to impress or be something different, because it's just adding a layer of exhaustion to work. And frankly, our job is hiring, you know, at the best of times, so who needs that extra layer of exhaustion?
1: Exactly, exactly. I love that one. It's that you you don't have to impress or be different. Um, But at the same, and I love that you said you don't fake it. You don't pretend that you don't know. At the same time, that's no ex—that's not an excuse for not developing skills and growing and continuing to work on weaknesses. I find too many times people put that, you know, these are my strengths and this is all I can do and that's it. You know, don't ask me to change mask on and that doesn't work as well. All right, Andrew, we're going to take a break. And when I come back, I want to talk a little bit about your model of leadership and how you think about leadership in general. So with me today is Andrew Cleary. Andrew's had an interesting career from law to journalism to um, to being an executive manager at Qantas, currently running the Qantas Loyalty Program, which has 12.5 million members and a whole host of other factors. We'll be right back.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc. Helping organizations get it and keep it. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. That's Wanda.Wallace at LeadershipForumInc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back. With me today is Andrew Cleary. Andrew's had a very interesting career journey from lawyer to journalist, now to executive at Qantas Airlines. Um, We've been talking about Andrew's transitions, and there actually is a lovely theory, a story, story to tell about this. When we talk talking about his transitions and the move particularly from being an individual contributor where it's accountable for his byline in a journal, in a lead article with a deadline that had to be done immediately, to being executive where the quality of the success of the team started to matter more, getting people bought in and seeing other people succeed and learning to lead in that way. So we've done a little bit of a teaser on this one, um, Andrew, but I want to talk about your leadership journal. And the thing that I'm intrigued with is I think everybody has a mental model of what a leader is supposed to do, what you should and which what you shouldn't do. And I know that if I can get, as a coach, if I can get people to pull that mental model out of their head and look at it. Put it in front of them. They start to decide whether or not it's fit for purpose or not, and they start looking at what else they can do. So, I'm interested. Have you ever explored your own mental models of leadership?
2: Yeah, I've, I've had mental models, and I'd say I've, I've, you know, I've had the models where I've actually, you know, put it down in, in paper and, and pulled it apart, working with a coach, uh, and I think both are really important. And the one thing I'd say starting out is. What I previously thought a leader was, uh, and more importantly, I guess what I, what I thought a leader was supposed to be, uh, turned out it's not actually my leadership model at all. So ah. that, that's probably that's where I'd start with this. Um, okay. And, and I came back to you, what we were saying before is you know almost that almost that era of that 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 person out the front who everyone goes you know they're... they're the smartest in the room or the best in the room, but they're also like the strongest and and really picking people up when they fall down. Like, you know, that's picking people up when they fall down, that's important. But I think something that never would have come into my mind about makes a great leader would have been uh, vulnerability or someone who knows when it's time to step back. So all of these things have really evolved for me. And and I think, you know, something that I've learned, and again, it's, it's taking bits and pieces from individuals, you know, from sometimes structured learning that I've done on the job or in my own time and putting it together in your own way, because this is not a cookie-cutter approach. You know, I'm I'm not someone who believes that it's about picking up a book and saying, you know, the five great steps to leadership. Uh, Maybe that works for some people, and I'm sure it does, but for me, it has been mostly about a series of powerful conversations or those, those real moments of clarity coupled with, a few, you know, parts of learning, you know, some structured kind of organised learning. Usually, where I've gone, okay, these are all locking together for me. But then the most important thing has then been that reflection and saying, well, what do I, what do I want to be known for? How do I want others to talk about my leadership style? Far more importantly, than how do I describe it myself? Okay, and, all right. And that concept of you know, people people talk about leadership shadows. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's a really interesting one. And I think that's one that really resonated with me is, you know, what's the shadow that you cast across your team, across the organization? You know, is, is it a long shadow or is it very, very narrow? Is it, are you expansive and generous with yourself? Or are you very, very narrow in your scope? And for those where that shadow does touch, what would they say? How does it impact them? Is it positive or is it negative? Is, is it inspiring or detracting? You know, is it team building and sharing or is it very me, me, me? Uh, that that concept is one that really resonated with me and I always come back to.
1: Great. I'm curious with the thing you said at the very beginning that what you thought you were supposed to be, the smartest, the best, the strongest, and the pick people up when they fall down, turned out not to be your mental model. So tell me a bit more about what your mental model really is. Is that the vulnerability piece or is it something else? Yeah, I think
2: that's a part of it. But but for me, I think, and again, it has to adapt to your style. And something that i found that I am comfortable, very comfortable with is is leading from the front. But I've found that, you know, leading from the front doesn't mean, you know, um, being the person who has all the answers. It's about being visible, uh, about being generous, um, but, but really making sure that everyone actually knows that you've got their back. Uh, you know, that's, that's what I think about leading from the front. But I am very comfortable in that. Setting the vision, and then actually going. I think before it would have been about set the vision and now tell people how we're going to get there. Whereas what mm-hmm. I've learned to be comfortable is leading from the front. Really can be set that vision and then figure out what each of the team members need to help them get there. So that would probably be one of the bigger changes. Uh, definitely, um, for me, championing you know and, and defending at times your team uh, is just critical as a leader. I've seen when people, you know, sometimes in something will be, a team might be criticised or an individual might be criticised and you've seen someone who really goes, yeah, they really should have done better than that versus when you back your team in that moment, uh, especially when they're there, uh, backing the team and then maybe having the conversation offline with them about, look, there are some things that we can learn from that and there are some things that could have been done better. But in that moment, defending your team uh, is incredibly powerful uh, for me, I've had to learn don't be an editor, um, you know, something that I think is, is hard to shake um, because, again, it comes back to, oh, this is not, not how I would have written it or if only I could just sharpen this up a little bit. And I still, I have to say, uh, at the time, you know, I think we often fall back into our bad habits um, when, it's, when pressure is on or, you know, when time is short. But I continually try to make sure that I'm not just, um, I'm not there to check their homework. I'm not there to do their work. I'm there to help them learn a lesson, and sometimes that lesson could be presenting something that is not 100% perfect because they've got to have the chance to get the feedback about why it wasn't perfect and how it could have been better, and understand actually that it's never going to be perfect. Uh, another thing for me that I've learned in my mental model is when things are going well, and I've learned this from a really great leader in my life, is actually just get out of your team's way a bit. You know, I think sometimes, you know. <laughs> Just let them get on with it. They're good people. They're where you were a few years ago, and when, and when when they're when they're humming and you know the machine is working really well, be comfortable with maybe not being uh, too important at that particular moment in time. <laughs>
1: Yeah, okay. I have a follow-up on both of those. Let's stay with the latter one for the moment because I find so many leaders who are so driven to get results, and they care deeply about their team, and they're doing all a lot of wonderful things to inspire and motivate and jazz the team up, and suddenly the team is humming, and then they freak out because there's nothing to do. So yeah. <laughs> get the advice to not be so important. But what do you do with yourself in those moments? I mean, how do you not feel like suddenly you're going to become expendable and unuseful?
2: Yeah, um, and, and I think it's again, there's something you've got to learn because, uh, you know, time is so precious. And if, if, I, if I get a, a day or, or, you know, um, a half day where I don't fill in, the natural tendency first is to be like, well, oh, you know, should I kind of walk around and, check in on and, you know, basically let's face it, annoy because they're like, I'm, I'm fine, I'm getting on with things. What you've actually got to do in those moments is, is step out uh, and I try and actually work from home in those times where I know I do have a little bit of space to actually step back from the day-to-day, you know, to, to take a look back and actually say, you know, how are we actually tracking against what I have put out there as the long-term vision and, you know, the, the 12-month strategic objectives how are we genuinely and honestly going against that? And and what basis do I have for making these assumptions? So when I do have that time, for me, the most the best thing that I know I can do with that time is to genuinely look at the data, what is it telling us about our performance? Are we being true to the vision that I set? And actually just, you know, reflect a little bit. But also what I love to do in those moments is get out of the day to day work and spend some time with my external network outside Qantas. You know, it's such a key part uh, of being a journalist and working in Investor Relations, maintaining a really, really broad network that you learn from, you, you know, you get new ideas from. So if I ever find myself, then, you know, I'm pretty lucky to, to have free time, but if I find that free time, those are the two things that I'll do. And but and maintaining an external network is so important for me because otherwise I think you just end up operating in a bubble, Uh, And you're not really understanding the bigger context of what's going on out there in your industry, but just the world in general
1: world in general yeah that makes a ton of sense to me um i hope people listening to this will actually take that advice to heart it's okay not to need to be in the middle of a crisis all the time okay so you said just before that you said you had to stop being an editor on occasion and that you had to learn to do that that not to take out your pencil and rewrite it or sharpen it or fix it up and then occasionally people would present things in ways that just didn't go so well, but that was their learning. So my question is, how do you learn to live with the mistakes of your team without feeling it somehow reflects badly on you as a manager?
2: Yeah, that is a really good question. Um, because I think of the opportunity I was allowed to go into those situations uh, and to present things and, and I, it's not like you know I was being set up, but I was time of being allowed to learn a lesson and the lesson was you know what you actually didn't seek a lot of advice before you came in here you did want to take the solo road or Mm. you know it's about the way that you presented a particular piece so I think for me it's I I always thought did that reflect badly on my manager at the time or my leader at the time or or did it end up in a situation where I got feedback and learnt from it both from my manager as well as from other people and wanted to be perfectly it. this is one that I continue to have to work at. And the one thing I think I've gotten a bit better at is it's not about being perfectionistic, but it's when you have that bias, you know, when, when you're short of time, you have that bias towards expediency and, you know, let's just get it done. And the quickest way to do this would just be for yeah. me to go, okay, look, this is really good, but here, I'm just going to help you sharpen it up. And I still okay. catch myself doing that at times. And then I've got to actually walk over and be like, I'm sorry I did that, I won't do it next time. <laughs> um... But, but I, you were robbing someone of a chance of, of, of figuring it out on their own with a bit of guided assistance if you just do it for them.
1: Yeah. I had that, Again, I had that question today. In fact, somebody said to me, you know, we're under massive deadlines. Um, it's touch and go whether we're going to make it or not. It's high-stake projects, high-stake visibility, a lot writing on it, a hard deadline. And I just find myself falling back into the directing, telling people what to do as opposed to forcing them to think. But how do I get out of it when we're under pressure?
2: Yeah. And and, look, and, and not, not all situations are the same. And sometimes it is a crisis. But it is high stakes. And, and in those times, it is all hands on deck. And that is when I think you, you'll you see that, you know, a lot of leaders in the business really will end up doing a lot more of the doing, you know, because that is that is often what you need. You need to call in your subject matter experts. But I've seen in those situations and, you know, in, a, in an airline, we're subject to Oil prices, you know, to geopolitical shocks, a volcano going off in Iceland on the other side of the world can have a tens of millions of dollar impact on flights that are grounded. In those situations, you do see the simulators really step up and take a lot more responsibility for the doing. But you can't get trapped in thinking that that's normal. So there, there are times when there are great opportunities for learning, there are times when it is, I need to step up and actually take ownership of this situation. never confuse that with being the expert about something that you're not the expert for.
1: Right, right. That makes a ton of sense as well, too. Okay, so we were talking a little bit about your mental model here and the journey that you've gone on to sort of discover it. And it sounds like it's evolved over time. And if I've gotten all of this, there's a lot of questions about looking at your leadership shadow. What is it you want people to Think? What's the expansiveness you want to touch the organization? How generous do you want to be on your time? Um, What do you want people to say about you? What's the experience of working with you? I think I captured, I hope I captured most of those. And you've also said that you like to lead from the front, but that means not telling, but being visible and being generous with your time and letting your team know that you have their back, as well as being able to set the vision and let them learn and make their own mistakes. Yeah. Are there any other components of your mental model that I missed?
2: I think probably just something else. Um, two other things I'd say. One of them, and, you know, it's, it's, a real, it's an old journalism adage, but I, I say it repeatedly because I, I believe in it so strongly, and it's show, don't tell. You know, don't uh-huh. tell me that the situation is bad, you know, in, in America right now. Show me that, the economy is performing poorly because of these stats. Uh, unemployment uh, is, are at these levels. Political unrest has manifested in these particular ways. But I've like said that the power of showing someone rather than just telling them is really, really important. I guess it comes back to probably me and how important clear communication and effective communication is for me and it has been for my career. So that is definitely something as a leader that I'll always, I'll often talk about. It's one of those little kind of adages but um, the, the last one for me, and again, it's again probably I say one of those things I would have never really expected would become something that I would say is critical to leadership, full stop. Um, and certainly to my own style, is, is, is get personal. Um, you know, be okay with uh, with being yourself, uh, and to the point where it's not just like admitting when you don't have the answers, but embracing it. Like share those experiences. Share your own, when you're uncomfortable, share the things that, you know, make you feel a little bit squeamish and like you're, you know, out on the edge of your seas, uh and not entirely in control. Because when you share those things, what you're actually doing is saying to everyone around you, it is okay for you to feel exactly the same way as this, and I bet you do regularly. And so that that generosity, I think, about being personal, being yourself, um, it, it's it both rewarding for yourself and I find that it actually makes you a bit more relaxed (laughs) you're like you're not kind of saying I need to present a certain way but you I've seen how other people respond and and I've seen people who have really gone from being a bit in their shells to in some instances I have thought really would have struggled to go to the next level to absolutely soaring uh, because I've seen them respond to that.
1: Great. um, I'm going to do a slightly detour on this one, but it's actually related to this particular point. I spend an awful lot of time, as many of my listeners know, with diversity and helping people who are of minority groups uh, strive, succeed, excel, and stick and stay in the organization. One of the things that I find is when you are in a minority group, you tend to believe that you have to present a nearly perfect image because that's what you believe it takes to fit in, to belong, to be accepted. And the pressure on that one is enormous. And the belief that you can't have any flaws is Un, I mean, it's almost unbelievable. So I find when leaders show that it's okay to be uncomfortable, that that's where growth from, comes from, they encourage particularly minorities to, and minorities I mean both ethnically, gender, as well as just minority and style they encourage those people to take greater risks, not uncalculated risks, but greater risks that are going to pay off over the long roll. So I, I just think that's fabulous that you say how impactful it can be to show people that it's okay to be uncomfortable. Here's what I'm struggling with. I don't have the answers. We'll get through it. It'll be all right. Fabulous. Yeah,
2: And, 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 and I'm, I'm really passionate about that, that point on diversity. And I think what I always say to people is, you know, maybe do a bit of, you know, investigate. Let's come back to the form of journalists. and investigate the company that, that you're working with a little bit. And is it just in your head? Like, you know, is, is it that kind of little devil on your shoulder saying, you don't fit in, you need to be something different? Or is it actually that, you know, when, when you objectively look at it, the company that you're working in, do want people to conform and be a certain way? Because if it is that case, You're probably in the wrong company because there are so many companies out there, small and large, that actually understand that diversity is actually good business. You know, this is about diversity of thought, diversity of background, you know, gender, cultural, sexuality, all of that. When you get that mix of people that's different and bring their own context leads to better decision making. It's better risk management and it provides a much, much broader pool from which you can set that future vision a lot of companies and a lot of individuals know that. And if people find themselves in a situation where that's just not objectively true, then I'd say speak out somewhere else where you will find that because it is out
1: there. Yeah. I I agree with you. It is out there. I also think people get it in their head an awful lot more than it is necessarily in in reality in the moment. There's always a lot more Uh, ways of connecting with that one. Okay. We have just a couple of minutes. Um, so when you're looking to develop your team's capability, I'm going to, going to shift gears a bit. What do you really try to get people to focus on? What do you think are the big, um, big, big skills to develop?
2: Look, I think um, the most important one for me uh, is it is important to to acknowledge uh, and have a conversation with, with your team around weaknesses. but. If you really want to move and especially, you know, if you want to meet people who are performing well into massive outperformance or for people who are in the middle of the road to performing well, it's often about focusing on their strengths far more than, you know, as in really doubling down on their strengths rather than it is about turning around weaknesses. Because if you can find people and you say, well, these are your strengths and I'm going to find projects and work that really plays to your strengths you'll often find that a lot of the weaknesses, whether it's defensiveness or, you know, lack of comfort, uh, coming out in a slightly spiky way, if they're in a place where they're playing for their strengths uh, and they're feeling great energy about what they're doing, sometimes those weaknesses can take care of themselves. But mm. A lot of people really do focus, I think, on the teams about how to iron out those weaknesses only. Uh, so that, that, that is definitely important to me. It's uh, finding out what makes people tick and where their passion is and trying to get them work where it's possible that will fit with that. Uh, another thing for me is, i said it before, this is not about cookie-cutter approach. You know, I, I tell my leadership journey and what's worked for me. I give examples of what I've heard from other people that are powerful, and then I say start the journey and start having a conversation with me, hopefully, but, you know, hopefully with some other people about you and what's going to work for you, but it is not one-size-fits-all in this space. Uh, and the other thing as well, and this I, I, love, the, I love the title of your show because I do say get uncomfortable. Pick out the things that make you feel uncomfortable and that you're terrified of, whether it's public speaking, uh, whether it's being part of a project that is outside your expertise or doing something that works that is not just because it's you and your business capacity. So get involved in the Diversity Council, the Sustainability Council, uh, anything that's a, a separate interest because it forces you to bring more to the situation than me wearing my current job title hat. So those would be a few things, along with just being authentic.
1: Okay. All right. Fabulous. Andrew, so much in that segment that is just incredibly powerful. I don't even know if I can come close To um, summarizing it, but I think the thing that strikes me the most listening to you talk about how you approach leadership and how you approach developing leaders is getting people to start conversations about themselves, about their weaknesses, about what works for you, about the kind of impact you want to make, about the shadow that you cast across the organization, about what it means to lead either from the front or from the side or from whatever that is. Um, And how you see that. And then, you know, I love this notion of getting people to be uncomfortable, to lean into what's the hardest thing for the do or what scares you or, you know, what you've never done before and need to just bring your perspective to. So, Andrew, thank you. It's been a fabulous conversation today.
2: Thank you, Wanda. I really enjoyed it.
1: It's been great. Um, My guest today, again, is Andrew Cleary. And Andrew, as we've said, has had an incredible career over a variety of things, but is currently at Qantas in the Qantas Loyalty Program. And Andrew, I have to say, I believe Qantas is lucky to have you. Thank you again. And join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you
0: for joining us today.